Hello everyone and welcome to another Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster and I'm the online editor of Motorsport magazine. Now we're back at Woodcote Park, the club's country club, after a couple of recordings at Pall Mall and the eagle eye amongst you might notice that on the wall there are lots of paintings of four-legged animals rather than four-wheeled cars um, and that's because we're in the Derby room. Now before I go anywhere I must apologise for my cold. It's not something I have any say over, um, but if the recording sounds okay, that's because of Alan Hyde, who's the wizard behind the scenes. Now, this year, the club is celebrating the 40th anniversary of James Hunt's 1976 Formula One World Championship. And two weeks ago, they had a big James Hunt dinner with Murray Walker, Freddie and Tom Hunt, and James's two sisters and brother, as well as John Hogan. Now, if we rewind 40 years ago to this day, the Formula One circus was busy preparing for the French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard, a race that Hunt would win. And who better to help us talk through that season than the former technical director of McLaren, Alistair Caldwell. Alistair, a very warm welcome to the Royal Automobile Club. Um, I think we're quite lucky to have actually caught you because you're usually somewhere in the middle of nowhere rallying at a Rolls-Royce. Um, what's your latest trip that you've just come oh, back Oh, I've from? just come back from South America. Well, the most recent, I just did the uh, Paris uh, Vienna in my pre-war Alfa, Alfa Romeo, which was a week down to uh, Vienna from Paris, which unfortunately my car misbehaved, and so I didn't do any good. But just before that, uh, just uh, got back the couple of days beforehand, I just got back from South America, and uh, I did a, a uh, trip in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru for 33 days in my Porsche, 912 Porsche. Amazing stuff. Amazing. We t I, t I fear that actually if we carried on, we could talk about the rallying probably for another hour yeah, or yeah. two. Yeah, so we right. must get <laughs> on to the 1976 season. Um, uh, what I wanted to do was sort of go through in reasonable chronological order, but we'll dip in and out with questions from readers. Um, and I wanted to go back to before the season started and signing... James Hunt. I think it was a case of you needing a driver, him needing a drive, but how did it actually come about? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's just my version of it, um, but uh, basically Lady Hesketh decided that Hesketh Racing was non-viable, which it, they, they managed to get a sponsor, and she was uh, funding it, so she decided to pull the plug on Hesketh, so suddenly James had no drive, and uh, we had done a, uh, trying to do a deal with Fittipaldi, and uh, John Hogan, who we just mentioned, and F Philip Morris believed that they had um, Emerson, um, by the shorts because there was no other drives you know in Grand Prix racing when the music stops it's like musical chairs you know you all got to sit down and they believed the only seat for, for Emerson was was at McLaren's and he was trying to ne negotiate a huge increase in salary and they weren't having it and um, and then he came along with the surprise second Copasuka and decided to drive for his own team this Brazilian based team uh, which of course was a disastrous decision but probably made a lot of money out of it um, and uh, so we were without a driver with only a few weeks to go. And uh, uh, so James rang me up and said, uh, hi, I think, I think I might be your new driver. And I said, yeah, I think you probably are. And uh, you better talk to Teddy about the money, but I don't think you'll get much. And uh, so off he went and talked to Teddy and probably John and uh, yeah, did a deal. And we had a new driver and uh, we were uh, interested because you know we'd seen him race the Hesketh and he was obviously quite um, successful but race driver estimation or, or judging is very difficult because they're so much reliant on their team 
always have been. So, you know, if the team's no good, the driver doesn't show, even though he's the best driver. And so it's difficult to say how good James was. And we went testing at Silverstone in the snow almost, you know, it was freezing conditions, and discovered that he couldn't fit in the car really because his legs were very long and his body was very short. So his feet were up around his, his knees. His, if he could have got them around his ears, they would have been around his ears. You can't because the monocoque's in the way. And uh, so we extended the monocoque. Uh, very quickly, we put an, another inch and a half in the length that moved the pedals forward. Uh, so off we went to Brazil with basically an untried combination, and the rest is history, of course, because he put the car on pole. After an hour's practice, he was on pole and stayed there for the rest of the weekend. Uh, sadly, in the race, the car had a failure; otherwise, he would have won the race. And uh, so we obviously had a good deal. You know, we we hey, we suddenly we had a good driver. Were, were you nervous? Uh, about signing him because I mean I think he showed obviously as you mentioned there glimpses of speed and, and brilliance but there was the other side of him and he wasn't I would say I don't know best way to put this he wasn't most reliable of drivers perhaps or oh I don't think so I think that, that was not a, that was actually not a factor because he'd raced the whole season with the Hesketh and not fl flung it into the barrier very much at all you know he, he turned out to be a solid safe driver in fact yeah. and good in traffic and so on we've seen this he was not, uh, the hunt, the shunt thing, you know, was back in his formative days, you know, the Formula 3 and stuff. Yeah. You know, by the time he got to Formula 1, he was as steady as, as any. And uh, the, dri the other drivers were perfectly happy with him. We knew this because they raced against him. So uh, he was, as a, as a driver, his racecraft was obviously quite good, or very good. Do you, did you have a backup plan? If oh, there were other drivers around. Uh, yeah, there was, I won't try and tabulate them, but there were other drivers around. Uh, but he was the obvious choice. We've actually got a, a question here um, uh, from Phil Crompton, um, and he's uh, asking if you had a free choice of all the drivers on the grid in '76, who would you have I ideally put in? Whew, um, probably Nicky, I guess. Nicky was a fantastic driver, or Emerson. Both of these guys were very complete racing drivers, very good testers, very good thinkers, hard workers. Um, so yes, Emerson would have been Emerson or Nicky. You mentioned just before, obviously, you went to the first race, Hunt put it on pole, um, and he was on pole at the second race as well. Mm -hmm. w there must have been a, a sort of a certain amount of relief um, from your perspective, because although you would have known he was fast, you had oh, yes, no yes, testing, uh, yes, no it was, practice. Yeah, it was obviously uh, you know, a, a very good, um, a good result. You know, we, you know, within an hour, we said, okay, you know, we're, we're, we've got a quick driver here, quick and competent, and... Uh, and uh, we uh, we were more than happy with their decision. Yeah, it's a good decision. And when I seem to remember reading something that you didn't uh, you didn't like becoming too friendly with drivers just because of the the risk in Formula One and things. But I, you must have got to know James as away from the track. Um, what was it? He, he seems like such good fun. Yes, oh yes. Well, one of the, you know, I, I've used this cliche many times that you know that on a rainy Sunday night in a bus stop bus shelter in Bognarikas. Uh, James was there, it would be exciting. He would have made it interesting some way, you know, because he would have, you know, hijacked a bus or... He, he, he was always good fun. And, uh, yeah, um, he was never boring. Being with James was never boring. Yeah. But I, it must be quite hard sort of not to be friends with him. Because it, no, it, it, it was it was easy. I had had this record, you know, where, where my brother had been killed in a racing car, and this took a while to get over. And then uh, I got to know Bruce very well. You know, Bruce was a friend of mine, and I really liked Bruce. And then Bruce got killed, and you know, I was a witness to that. And uh, at that stage, I thought, well, I'm not going to befriend racing drivers anymore. I'm not going to go on a holiday with them. I'm not going to party with them. You know, 
I'm not going to. And it was easy for me as well because in those days we were so understaffed that I actually worked probably 18 hours a day as a regular thing, 17 day, seven days a week. So I didn't party much. I just went to work at racetracks and when I came home I went straight back to work. You know, I didn't even see my children grow up. They just got bigger, you know, but I didn't actually talk to them because I was at work seven days a week, 18, 20 hours a day, continuously. And so I didn't, you know, and even at racetracks, I stayed at the racetrack. I didn't go back to the hotel. Uh, all the other team managers uh, went back to the hotel, not me. I stayed at the racetrack with my mechanics until they stopped work and then went home with them because that was the best way to win the races. What was it that was driving you then? Was it winning races or what was yes, it? Because I mean, that, that's, uh, to do that those hours takes a huge amount of drive and determination I, to get somewhere. Yes, I had drive and determination, which I didn't realise, you know, I didn't analyze it I just did I just worked like mad and uh, I enjoyed work and I had a fantastic job and very few men in their lives have a fantastic job and I had a fantastic job because we were such a small company and so understaffed uh, ridiculously understaffed that I made masses of decisions about everything I actually built the cars yeah, they got designed by Gordon and I built them along with the factory staff but I was intimately involved in building the cars and then intimately involved in racing them and intimately involved in all the decisions at the racetrack Teddy was my boss so he and I were a committee but when it really came to the hard shove to pit stops and rain or whatever it was me that made all the decisions uh, so you know there was no committee involved I was the man and uh, I made thousands of decisions a day and I enjoyed it I really liked it I get the impression that you probably wouldn't like working for a Formula One team nowadays well I don't know uh, I think I could still do it uh, and I think you know they're, they're farcically overstaffed they're just ridiculous I mean like you know, I was saying to somebody the other day I think I think the clowns have got 800 people to do my job now <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, is that's probably not far from the truth. I mean, it's, it re they really do have that number of people. Yeah, they do. They have 1,200, apparently, to not build two Grand Prix cars, <laughs> to assemble them. Um, now, we, we must try and keep on track and the 1976 season. Yep. And the, se the 76 season uh, was obviously this incredible roller coaster. Um, when you were actually going through, I mean, I was, was going to start with the Spanish Grand Prix disqualification and exactly mm. sort of what happened there yep. and why. Yep. Um, when you were going through all this, did you realise how much of a, a, a huge season this was for the sport? Because it really it kicked off um, TV co proper TV coverage, and it was really the, the season that put the sport on the map. Did I, when you yeah, were in it, I guess yeah, you so must have when you were pressed up against it, you know, you, it's the old can't see the, the the wood for the trees. You know, I was right in the middle of it all, and the Spanish Grand Prix was when we had a change of rules. Uh, where they suddenly limited the height of the wing and the width of the car and s various other regulations, overhang. Yeah, there was a whole new show. So the cars that turned up in Spain were quite different from the cars that raced in Brazil. The, the, the aerodynamics were different, um, you know, imposed by a new set of regulations. And the famously, uh, they came to measure the cars at, N at Nürburgring the year before in German Grand Prix. And they asked, you know, who's got the widest car? And everybody knew, oh, the McLaren, that's the biggest car. So they came to my car and said, you know, I want, we want to measure your car for the regulations. And I said, okay. So we held the rulers for them and they got a tape measure. And I think it was 214. They said it was 214, 214 centimetres. I think that's the figure. And I said, oh, well, you can't make it 214 because it might, it's a cold day today. You know, you can't got to give us some tolerance. So make it 215. So they said, okay, we'll make it 215. This is the FIA. And they went off and wrote the rule. Now, like an idiot, 
I measured everything else on my car, but I didn't measure the width of my car. Now I still think about what a fool I was. But because the car had not changed at all, so the wheels, which were very precisely made, the suspension, which is all precisely made, so the car was exactly the same in the width. So I didn't, think, I didn't bother to measure the car. But in reality, what had happened is Goodyear's had made new tyres, and the tyres, which used to have straight sidewalls, now had bulging sidewalls, which I hadn't accounted for. So they swelled out from the wheel, like most road you know, tyres do. But in those days, the Grand Prix tyres were flat-sided up until then, because they were cross pies, and now they changed to radials, and suddenly they had this shape. And I didn't take this into account, and I didn't measure my car. Interesting, I believe that the Spaniards measured it every day, found it was too wide the first morning, and didn't say anything, because I, be I believe that the, the Ferrari lawyers, who, who had two, they had two full-time lawyers, were involved, and they said, shh, 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 don't tell them, because we'll wait till after the race, and then we'll tell them. Because if, we'd, if they'd been told us you know, on Thursday or Friday, we would have fixed it overnight. We, we, we could. We just narrowed the car. Wang, dang, bang. You know, it would have taken us two hours, and we would have narrowed the car. That was within our capabilities, because um, it was only a little tiny bit, five-eighths of an inch, you know, just over a centimetre. Uh, but they did measure the car after the race, and sadly, I'd already left the racetrack to try and get back home to go back to work. I left during the race. Was was not, not to go back and see the family to get back to the office. Yeah, yeah, back to the office. With a, we had a, a, a plane, a leased plane, and was meant to be a car pick us up during the race to get us back. This is pre-helicopter days. Now, that, you know, now they would use the helicopter. And uh, so amazingly enough, well, not amazingly, it didn't work. It was Spain. The car didn't turn up, so we were left on the side of the road. So we had to go back to the racetrack. And when we went back to the racetrack, um, the, um, it, was, you know, it was all this shit that hit the fan, and the car had been disqualified. Um, and uh, so there was nothing, we were illegal, you know, the car was too wide. And then we got a huge amount of publicity from this, and there's Uche, this was the start of Grand Prix racing getting really on the map, because we went back to England, and there was a huge controversy about it. And uh, both ITV and BBC asked for a car to go on TV, so we put two cars, Gordon Coppock took one to ITV and I took one to the BBC, and we had them you know, on live television. Uh, so this was huge coverage, because uh, the disqualification, actually all the newspapers picked it up and so on. So it that was the start of, of the daily newspapers beginning getting to really interested in Grand Prix racing. And James, because James was glamorous and tall and yeah. pretty, so you know, that got their attention as well, and he had this beautiful wife and so on, and uh, you know, had the Playboy background with Hesker. So, so all this thing got the daily newspapers interested and gossip magazines and so on. So suddenly Formula One was becoming more important yeah, because I was I was going to say what, what you know what what was it that kind of triggered that the reaction from the papers? It must have been uh, Hunt and the fact that he was in papers. He was anyway. yes, he was in yeah, gossip columns yeah. before. You know, he was in the in the Evening Standard in those days. Had you know bits about James every week. You know, and uh, famously the, his brother his brother Peter they called him Norman, so he's known as Norman ever since. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so. Uh, uh, <laughs> So, so yes, the daily newspapers started to get interested, and of course, if we jump ahead, then we, when we had the incident, with the, we went to the South African Grand Prix, and Susie ran off with Richard Burton. Yes. James's yeah. wife left him and went off with Richard Burton, and then this got massive coverage. We had the the the, you know, the, the Sydney Herald and and the Jakarta Times and so on, journalists at the racetrack, like paparazzi everywhere, surrounding the hotel, trying to find out where he was because we hid him. 
he uh, he didn't stay at the hotel. We sent him off in the countryside. Stayed with a, I think it, I think it was Labour, a famous uh, South African tennis player. Took him home below below the windows every afternoon, so he could play tennis and relax without being hounded. Because uh, he suddenly was a worldwide superstar, you know. And the paparazzi were after him. Amazing, isn't it? And uh, we we touched on it just there, but can you ex give me a sort of a bit of background as to what the relationships were like between Ferrari and McLaren? Because you know, in, in the modern world of Formula One, there are a lot of politics, and there's, um, there's sort of there's everyone's fighting for control. Mm -hmm. But I, d I think if you compared it to 1976, people wouldn't believe the sort of uh, the politics between two teams like Ferrari and McLaren. And there's been bits and pieces through the ages, but I, d I think the late 70s it was sort of an all-time high, wasn't it, in terms of what was there going was on huge, behind the scenes? There was huge um, competition, you know, I mean, Grand Prix, that's the joy of Grand Prix, Grand Prix racing, you know, motor racing, it is intensely competitive, so it always was, uh, but we had this intense rivalry with, with uh, Ferraris, because we were the two top teams then, so it was either us or them, you know, sometimes another team would win, but basically the, the basic struggle was Ferrari versus, versus McLaren, and they had 40, 50 people at the racetrack, two full-time lawyers, um, and we had 11 people, and no PR, nothing, just this, you know, bunch of guys building the cars so I had to Teddy and I had to do what little PR we could and I didn't stay I didn't like journalists as much because most of the journalists were you know asked silly questions and we didn't have anybody to answer the Sorry silly about that. We, 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 yeah but you know there were some expert journalists who asked the right kind of questions who we tolerated but you know the daily newspaper you know the Johannesburg Times if they came to talk to me I had no tolerance I should have had somebody who had tolerance. Yeah, we should have hired a guy who would talk to them and tell them what the drivers had for breakfast or all the rubbish they wanted to know. Um, you know, because the, the, they all wanted to know about the social side of it, as opposed to the, you know, what do they think of death and all this kind of silly questions. And uh, so, um, so we had no PR. We had no, no. We just thought that we would just keep racing and, and you know that that would do it. Uh, it's not true, of course. Because rules the world, and. Uh, you know, battle science every time. You know. and, such and a great phrase that one. And uh, yeah, so 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 um, yeah, we didn't have a bullshitter. Yeah, we just kept on doing the job. And they had lots of bullshitters and talked to all the journalists and got the journalists going and so on. So there was a huge political thing going on, but we were not really involved. We were just busy heads down getting on with our race our racing team. Talking about getting on with the racing. Uh, the beginning of the season didn't, it sort of went okay with quite a few retirements. And actually, by the time you got to Monaco, I think James was 33 points behind uh, um, Lauda. Mm -hmm. uh, surely at that point in the season, you, were, you weren't still thinking the championship was possible because no one could have predicted the sort of the second half and oh everything yes, that went yeah, with yeah. it. Yeah, you, I don't, it's interesting. Yeah. We didn't, I, I did not give this any consideration at all. My job was to win races and try and win races. And there were plenty of points in hand. And you've got to remember in those days, of course, the points were far better system because there were far more points to winning. Now, you know, you come second, it's almost as good the same as winning. You know, it's all very, very soft, the points. Whereas the, in then, the days, you know, there was only points for the first six and there was quite a steep drop, you know. I forget what it was, eight, six, five, four, three, two, one, or something like that. So winning was far better than coming second. So uh, you could you could catch up. You could just do the arithmetic. You know, there's 10 races to go, and that's 80 points, and we're 30 points behind. But I didn't even think about that. That wasn't my job. I didn't even read the magazines. Yeah. All I did 
was just trying to get my team to concentrate on trying to win the next race. I mean, Monaco was a disaster because um, we uh, we did something to the gearbox to lighten the car and it didn't work. So the first couple, of the first practice session and practice at Monaco was extremely important and brief. And uh, the car, you know, James couldn't get going at all because the gearbox kept failing because uh, we took a part out of the gearbox to make it lighter, first gear, which we didn't need, and it just kept jumping into the position of first place and getting onto the interlock, so he came round in third gear, he couldn't have any gears at all, then we had to take the back of the gearbox off, uh, and after two two times of this, um, I managed to jam a socket in there, he beat it in with a hammer to stop it from happening, and, and, he, and he was able to practice. So that was bad management on my part, because we had not tested this mod. It's, it's so wonderful to hear stories like that, though, of you know people mending things like that, rather than nowadays when they have th hundreds, probably maybe even thousands of sensors on the car, and they know what the problem is before it's even happened. Mm, and um, of course, they have a, a test team, and when and I assume that when they change something on the car, they test it. Yeah, they don't they don't change the race car at all, um, yeah. apart from adjusting it. You know, like ride height and stuff like we still did. The actual basics like changing the gearbox or something, they do that and they put it in a test team because they've got a totally separate team with separate trucks and 50 people or 100 people or 200 people and they rush off and wind around endlessly with test drivers and you know, they test everything. We, we didn't have that ability. We, we, we didn't go testing much because we were just too busy. In the winter time, because we had an off season, we tested and we tested new components. But stupidly, we didn't even have a, a, a development engineer. I did it all. You know, I did the six-speed box conversion for the car, which was a fantastic gain, which the other teams didn't pick up for a, for a year. And uh, and I put the skirts around the car. So when we got to South Africa, we had more downforce because we had a car that was becoming a ground-effect car. And uh, yeah. so these innovations, these were done... At night, when I was while the mechanics were working, I would sit and think about things, and they would d you know decide to put the skirts on the car, decide to do the six-speed gearbox, which was my personal conversion, and decide to do the air starter, which lightened the car a lot. Suddenly, all the cars had we our car had an air starter when we went to, which it took like 12 kilos off the car just like that, and um, so uh, the I was the development team, Matt, of one guy, and I was the team manager and the technical director, and yeah. yeah, you had your hands full. I was busy. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, we've actually got some questions about some of the technical aspects of that season, um, so I'll come to those in a second. But the, you mentioned sort of the testing things. Hunt wasn't a huge fan of testing, was he? As, as well, far as I can remember, this is one of the problems. You know, in reflection, you know, we made a mistake uh, in the fact that that, that James mm. knew what a proper racing driver should do. He knew what Fittipaldi did, he knew what Nicky did, and he probably discussed it with Nicky. So he knew all about being a proper racing driver. But in fact, he was just bored by testing. He was even almost bored by racing, but he was certainly bored by testing. So when he went testing, he was always uh, you know, disinterested, basically, and uh, wanting to go home. <laughs> Are we finished yet? Are we there yet? You know, whereas, it's like having a small child in the back of a yeah, car. Yeah, whereas the, the proper racing driver is going, oh my God, we need another 10 minutes, beg them some more track yeah. time, you know, uh, because we want to try the new wing or, you know, try this, try that, you know. So in, in, in reflection, we should have, like they do now, had a third driver, of, you know, who was the test driver and used him and then just got James to come along and, and check it out or whatever. But the, the hard work would have been done by somebody else because he yeah. wasn't interested in hard work. He was only interested in playing and going quick when he was good at going quick. Yeah. You know, um, so it, we, he was fine. You know, we just made a mistake. 
I mean, the classic was our big turnaround of the season was the French Grand Prix, because if you remember rightly, they narrowed the car. We narrowed the car, and the car was uncompetitive, and the whole world said, ah, Ferraris, you know, their PR boys pumped this and pumped this and pumped this. The car's now been narrowed by a centimetre, and, it, and it's no good anymore. You know, and, uh, and it was true. But stupidly, what we'd done, once again, we made a mistake. We had made lots of mods for Spain, including putting the... Uh, the oil coolers and the side pods and extending the side pods to take them plus a couple of other things but we moved the, the oil coolers from under the wing put them in the side pods and this made the car uncompetitive but in those days without air wind tunnel we didn't realize what we'd done we'd made a huge gain by taking these oil coolers out from under the wings another wing was working like mad and we had extended the side pods to put these oil coolers in and that had extended the floor and the skirts and now the car had more downforce like mad but we didn't realize that, and we put it back to the old configuration and raced for three or four races, and the car was miserable. I mean, I think he did quite well in Belgium, but then he, the engine went and you know, so on. But we were no longer super competitive, and the Ferrari's politicians used us to beat us up you know, and, and tell the world that you know, McLarens were cheating, and now they couldn't cheat, and you know, now they were uncompetitive. But I decided to go to Paul Ricard the week before and test this configuration backwards and forwards. And we went with the old configuration, if you like, I forget how we started, and then we switched to the new configuration, and the car was a second, over a second quicker. And James said, oh no, the track's just cleaned up. You know, right, if, I, if, I, if I just kept running, you know, it would have got quicker, and I'm getting quicker because I'm learning the track. So, oh, we'll change it back. No, 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 don't change it, it doesn't make any difference. So I, against his will, really changed it back, changed it back, <laughs> and it went slower. So I said, see, now it goes slow. He said, no, that's just me. I'm getting tired now. <laughs> and it is very difficult to pick up this downforce thing because it's invisible, yeah. you know. So then we changed the car back, and it was quicker again. And he still insisted there was no difference. So we went with the side pods oil coolers. You see it in the pictures. The car's got the extended side pods. The oil coolers are out from under the wing, and the thing goes like the wind. And we realized it's a very smooth track, so I lowered the car so it was actually touching all the way around, which you can see, because this is the start of the sparks coming off the car. And we just ran away from Ferraris. Yeah. And Ferraris also got, got silly, because they, Nicky came and boasted how he had a new engine. You know, we had this new engine. And we said, oh, you got that in the car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bang, bang, both of them. After 20 laps or whatever, it's all there. You know, both Ferraris let the engine go after so many laps, because they changed the engine without testing it. So we won the race, and we also from this got 16 points because psychologically, on the Wednesday, I think it was, we had the hearing about the Spanish Grand Prix. And these three old geriatrics of the FIA were going to sit there and listen to Ferrari saying how you know, we had cheated and how the car was slow and you know, miserable and we should be banned the eight points. But we won the French Grand Prix going away from Ferraris. We were going away from them before they blew up. Car was flying because it now had the downforce and it was just skimming the ground, going like crazy. It was the best car there for sure. So Teddy was able to go to the FIA on Wednesday and say, look, the car's narrow and it's a winner. It didn't make any difference. So the old boy said, yeah, you're right. You have your eight points back. Yeah. So we got the eight points back. Plus the eight for the win. Uh, for the win, yeah. yeah. Well, that was a yeah. straightforward win. We've actually got a question here from Peter that we've sort of half answered um, and he, he wanted to know how the ground effect system worked on the 76 McLaren and whether you think the McLaren had more downforce than the Ferrari and, and uh, was better balanced compared to the 312. Uh, I don't know about the balance but uh, because that's you know, a matter of adjustment but for sure the car had more, more downforce. I had decided to put these flexible yellow plastic skirts around the car. Uh, I decided to let the, the wing, the front nose lift up 
and it wasn't held down anymore because one of the problems was when the, when the nose touched down, you lost all the downforce because the road actually lifted the car up, but this nose was loose. So it, when it braked and the nose touched and the, touch, the nose had running strips. So aerodynamically, the car was superior and it also cut a hole in the floor uh, underneath the car, which people didn't pick up on. There was, a vent, there was a NASA duct under the floor and because of the shape of the cockpit, that was a low pressure area as well. So that was sucking on this hole and we had the skirts around and we'd extended the monocoque to put these oil coolers on. So suddenly we had a lot of downforce. Yeah. Uh, we, we, it wasn't until we tested later on we realised just how much. And it was like 300 pounds, 400 pounds of downforce. Mm. And uh, with no loss, that was the magic thing you see, no drag. Mm. No increase in drag. Normally you put the wings up, you, know, you, you get more downforce, but you get more drag. But this was free, which you don't often get in Grand Prix racing. It was free lunch. Yeah. The car was just as quick on the straight, and it was sucking itself down. Yeah. And uh, this was the beginning of the... Of the so we more or less invented downforce, and it was Chapman who, <laughs> who Chapman who picked up the idea. Thought that's a good idea, but wha why don't they make the sides parallel, make the car huge, and make Venturis? And that's you know, the yeah. history now. Yeah. And then we had the wing, wing the wing cars. Yeah. Well, something else that is absolutely history now is the British Grand Prix that year, um, at Brands Hatch, and it, mm -hmm. I, I, if. 1976 was one of the most important seasons in Formula One in terms of getting in front of a bigger audience. I think the British Grand Prix was the most important race that season in terms of global coverage um, of the sport. It, it, it must have been, I mean, there was a huge crowd there, mm -hmm. all ready, you know, for James to take the, a Grand Prix win. Yeah. When you turned up, you must have realised this race was something a bit different because of the massive crowd lining the banks of brands. Yeah, once again, you see, I'm, I'm going to sound, you know, I don't know what I'm going to sound like. No, because really? I was just so focused on trying to win the races. I wouldn't have even looked up to see. I wouldn't have. Really? You know, somebody might have said, "There's a big crowd here today." Okay, there's a big crowd, and uh, of course, as the day went on, you know, the crowd got very vocal and got. In, and I, uh, I was became very aware of the crowd, but um, you know, up until then, you know, but it, was it, it was just another race. Is normal. Yeah, just another race. And in those days, of course, you had big crowds. You know, Bernie's got rid of them now. Uh, he doesn't like crowds, and uh, so he just prices people out so they can't get to the races. You know, there was 80,000 people there or something. Now, if you had it again, there'd be 25,000 because, yeah. um, you know, it would be 200 pounds a ticket or something. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, because it, it all started kicking off that weekend, really, when um, there was the first corner crash. Yes. So uh, can you just t uh, the story's been told, but it's it's from from the from the from your mouth. It's it'll, it's a bit uh, different. And I know the actual story. Right. Well, let's have the actual story. The then. actual story. <laughs> hopefully, it's not, you know, you've got enough tape or whatever. I'll try and speed it. Yeah, I'll try and make it not too long. We qualified, I think, third, or maybe on pole. I don't. Know, yeah, front front row, front row with Nicky. But yeah, the front row was was Nicky. Yeah, James was on pole. In fact, yeah, James was on pole. Now if I think about it, and Nicky alongside, Clay behind, and the rest. And uh, on the start, James got a bit too much wheel spin, and bands was always difficult because it was a slope. And if you got wheel spin, you slid down the slope, and uh, it got awkward. You know, because it wasn't flat; it was quite steeply cambered. And so cars that got wheel spin tended to oversteer, the back dropped down, and then you had to back off. And you know, next thing you know, Clay was by him, managed to get by him, and ran into Nicky. So the two Ferraris collided, and James ran over Nick, um, Clay, I think, flew in the air and uh, landed on the left front corner and bent the front, left front suspension uh, badly. And there's carnage behind with cars flying off and you know, into the barrier and into each other and so on. Uh, but James, being James, kept driving the car. 
This is, a, this is really crucial. James did not stop at the scene of the accident. He paired off after the Ferraris, even though his car was damaged. And he tore up the Missing hill. A corner. He tore up the hill uh, uh, up to Druids, round Druids. And on the live TV coverage, which you can see, you can look it up on YouTube, you'll see that the marshals at the top have got their flags crossed. They, you use the yellow flag and the oil flag to show race has stopped. And as he comes round Druids, because the TV is following him, because he's you know, James Hunt, uh, you can see that the lights are flashing on the gantry at uh, the start-finish line. Race has stopped, red flagged, red flagged. Now, I don't want to be too pedantic, but the rules actually say if the red flag was shown, you must stop where you are. Stop where you are on the racetrack. Now, James didn't do that. He just drove to the back of the pits and stopped and got out because in those days, Brands Hatch, or still is, the pits and the back straight are very right next to each other. So he's literally able to run up the hill to see us with his abandoning his car at the bottom. Meanwhile, Nicky and the rest of them who, is, who had healthy cars tore around for the full lap with the red flags showing didn't, at full race speed, got to the start-finish line where the red gantry lights were flashing and at full race speed went over the top of Paddock into the accident because he was trying to persuade them to take the lights off, which had happened in races in the past. And Nicky was a good-thinking driver. He thought, if I keep pressing on here, they've got a whole lap to clear the thing, they might change their minds and turn the lights out. So he comes, you'll see it in the video, over the top of Paddock at full speed and has to be, the, the, manic, the, the marshals are panicking because they think he's going to plough into them. And he slows down, stops, and then does another lap. Goes all the way around to the start-finish again. So now he's done two laps on the red with all the other cars that were helping. So now they should be disqualified because they've not done what they were told and they've also done over the start-finish line at full speed. So they should easily be disqualified, every one of them. Okay, but we'll let that aside. Everybody ignored that. And meanwhile, James had come to me and said, well, I said, well, it's a car like He said, oh, it's a write-off. Oh, dear. So I said, okay, it's too badly damaged. And so I said, okay, get the T car, the training car, we call it, and put that on the grid. But you won't be allowed to start the race in it because you have to start the race in the race car that started the original race. If you, you, that was the rules in those days. Not anymore, but in those days, you had to use the race car that was in the original start for the second start. But we put the T car on the grid along with Tyrrells, Ferraris, put one on for Regazzoni. Uh, I think there were six T cars on the grid all sitting there, ready to go. And the crowd was now getting upset because he started to get from the PA system that James Hunt wasn't going to be allowed to start the race because he was in the T car. Meanwhile, I had now trotted, had lost five minutes, so I trotted down, found the race car, and all it had was this bent left front corner. So I trotted back to my tiny number of mechanics and took them all off their cars on the grid, the, 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 the four mechanics on the grid and the two guys, the T cars, the six of them, and said, get that car, put it in the garage and change the left front suspension. And the truck was miles away in the paddock, sent the truck driver off to get the bits and, and, and they started to repair the car, which was quite a simple job, but they had to get the bits and take it to bits and put this new suspension arm on it and so on. So I went down and now Dean Delamont, who was the, uh, the uh, RAC man from the RSC who was running the clerk of the course was got the assembled team managers saying you've got to take your tea cars off the grid we can't start the race with these tea cars they're illegal and they're all saying no 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 and I'm saying we're not taking ours off the grid 
we're not taking ours, we're starting our car. Ferrari says, yeah, yeah, we're starting our car. Tyrrell's, yeah, 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 Surtees, everybody, all the teams that had T cars, Ligier, I think, you can look it up. But anyway, there was at least half a dozen T cars on the grid, which were illegal. And poor Dean said, no, no, we can't do this. There's, you know, if somebody get, wins points with an illegal car, how's that going to happen? Is he going to get disqualified? You know, it's just not tenable to, to have the race with the legal cars. No, 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 we want, we're going to run our T cars. And I ran back, supervised the repair of the car, ran back to the meeting and said, yeah, yeah, we're starting our T car, T cars forever. Tore back and uh, finally, <laughs> quite, quite a nice little antidote. The guy called Steve Bunn, haven't seen him for years, was one of the mechanics, and he did the tow-in, which is where the front wheels point because we had to redo this, and he said, oh, it's good. And then I stood back from the car and could see that it wasn't good, that it had masses of toe out. He'd got it wrong by a whole degree on the machine. You know, he, he'd got the, the, the digits, the, the, the little bits right, but the major thing was a, a whole turn out. And interestingly enough, now the crowd in the stands had picked this up. They could see me running backwards and forwards. They could see the boys trying to fix the did, car. Did the other teams not see you doing this as well? Well, maybe, but they certainly didn't pick up on it. And if they did, what could they do about it? And I went back to the meeting again and said, Yo, uh, you know, we're going to run our T-car, T-cars forever. And Delamont was saying, oh, my God, you know, you can't do this. <laughs> then I ran back and they had redone the, the uh, suspension and the crowd in the stands were cheering now. The 10,000 people were right opposite. Woo, fantastic. And I literally got in the car because I used to drive them a lot and drove it through the thousands of people that were in the pit road. The pit road was absolutely solid in those days with hangers-oners and people who got over the fence or whatever. Drove it out, backed it up to the, 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 the T-car, got out of it and said to James, get in there, take the T-car off the grid, put it on the grid, went back to the meeting and said, we've taken our T-car off the grid. <laughs> I, bet the I didn't say I put my race car on the grid. I said, <laughs> we've taken our T-car off the grid. And Ferraris went, you could see them, you know, Montezella, just like, oh, my God, they fixed the car. Oh, God. The whole little world crumpled. So the race was started with James in his original race car, and he won the race fair and square. There's absolutely no doubt that James Hunt won the British Grand Prix in the original race car and followed the rules implicitly. Ferraris didn't follow the rules. All the people who did a full lap under the red flag and then did another lap to get back to the grid all cheated, if you like, or were illegal. So the only legal car in the race was James. The, the grid should have just had James. That would have been it. The grid of one car, the only car that complied with the rules. As it was, because Ferrari's politics were so good, uh, they got the thing reversed. And they invented a rule that said you had to do the, the, uh, the lap back to the grid which was the opposite of what the rules said. But how can they get away with inventing because a rule? Because they were politic politicians, and they actually sent, and this is a sad story, but they actually sent Nicky to the, to the Place of the Concorde, the FIA, with a big white bandage with staged blood on it. He had had pretty bad burns. He was perfectly cured, and he was no longer bleeding. This is a long time later. This is Canadian Grand Prix time. And he was sent by Ferraris with a bloody bandage over his ear, which was staged. And the three old boys came, the, the, the uh, geriatrics that make the decision, who know nothing about motor racing. They're probably from Honolulu or, you know, because every, yeah, I don't know who they were, but I didn't do any research. Should obviously, if I had lawyers, I would have done research. Because Ferraris would have known exactly where they came from. Take them out to dinner the night before. Yeah, it's all 
It's the way it goes. And we didn't have any mechanism like that. We just took the BBC producer uh, with the film to say that this film was <coughs> not being interfered with and the film was our evidence because there was James taking part in the race when it was stopped. And there was James stopping, not completing the lap. Perfect. We had no case to answer. So Ferrari said, actually, what he should have done, he, he cheated because he didn't do the lap and stop on the grid. So he should be disqualified. So the old boy said, okay, let's disqualify him. And took the eight points away. And there's no appeal. You can't go beyond the FI tribunal. That's it. These three old geriatrics make their decision. You're stuffed. So we were stuffed. We lost the eight points. James and I were testing in Canada before the Canadian Grand Prix. And we got the news and we said, well, that's it. There's no way we can win the championship now because we're just too far behind, even though there was numerically correct, but it just seemed improbable now. So now I am paying attention because of this. So, um, so but the re you know, I can go on. I could tell, because <laughs> then we, we actually won the Canadian yeah. Grand Prix. Well, we're I was going to come to the Canadian <laughs> Grand Prix in a second, because I think the night before was particularly amusing. Yeah. Um, I've got a question here, actually, about the Italian Grand Prix, and um, I think I'm going to stoke the fire a little bit more. Uh, because oh, that was another stitch. <laughs> well, yeah, so I can tell you that story as well. And another complete Ferrari yeah. stitch. So, well, this is from William, and he says, "Hi, Lester. Would you be able to recall the manner in which the keenly impartial Italian governing body handled the McLaren team over the Monza weekend of '76?" And he finishes it with both barrels, mate. Okay. <laughs> so I well, we, we 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 to give a background to it, we had um, we had discovered that the fuel we went we used five star fuel that was the rules you had to use five star fuel and because we were low budget unlike ferraris we just bought fuel wherever we were in the world you know if we went to silverstone we just stopped at the petrol station and filled the tank up on the truck with five star fuel which was meant to be maximum minimum 98 maximum of 101 octane and so i in my naive way that's what we did and we used to go to austria and austria the engine used to blow up a lot Nearly all the teams would have engines bang. And uh, the, the, the perceived wisdom was that there was a huge hill in Austria and this long time on the fourth throttle was too much for the engines. But I thought, this is, can't be true because we're at altitude already, so the engines aren't producing full power. They're not revving anymore, so it's, uh, you know, it's not true. So it must be some other factor. And the only thing I could think of was we used this Austrian fuel, which was available in the paddock, five-star. And so I took some of it back and gave it to Texaco, who were our sponsor, who didn't provide us with fuel. Would have if we'd asked, but we didn't bother. And uh, they measured this fuel and said, oh, this fuel is rubbish. It meets the, um, the top, the, the uh, research uh, figure, but its motor number is rubbish. So all fuel has you know, octane, two octane ratings. One's called motor and one's called research. The motor is far more important because it's done by running an engine in a given conditions and seeing how much it, when it detonates. And this is what Benz invented this. He made an engine with a movable cylinder head and he literally ran all the petrol he could find and turned the cylinder head down. He had numbers on the cylinder head. And when it knocked, because you could hear it, dang, bang, 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 he said, oh, that fuel's 90, and this one's 80, and that one's 70. And he could measure them with his engine, with his single cylinder engine. So he invented this motor number, which is far better than the research. The research is just burning the, the fuel in a retort and measuring the speed of the burning but not this motor number. So I said to Texaco, well, we need better fuel. You know, we, we, can you make better fuel? Oh, yes. So they, they actually shut down a refinery in Belgium and played with the knobs, which cost millions of dollars because they lost the whole day's output, played with the refinery because it's not an exact science, and built some fuel that had a motor number way, way higher in the 90s, uh, near almost the same as the research number. 
They made a tank of load of this fuel, put it to one side, and went back to making normal five-star. So this is what we used, and this allowed us to actually change the compression ratio on the engine, raise the compression ratio on our, on our engine a little bit, and we had costs, pistons made by Marley in Germany, Germany, which were lighter than the Cosworth pistons. So our car, our engine had a, an edge towards the end of 76, better fuel and better, slightly lighter pistons. So this was a good advantage. So because you can't keep many secrets in Formula 1, this started to get, you know, Read. And once again, Ferraris, with their, their PR system and their lawyers, started to spread the story that McLarens ran illegal fuel. They did cartoons in the papers with people holding their noses, and you can't go near a McLaren because of the stink, and, and so on. So they, they engineered this, this, this bullshit again. And our fuel was illegal. But every race time, we checked with Texaco. They would take a sample and run it through the test and say yes it's still because we thought sitting in the tr in this tanker it might you know change but no and what the octane we decided on was 101.8 because the rule said the maximum octane was 101 and then in brackets which was part of the rule plus or minus one percent tolerance so 101 plus one percent is 102.1 so our fuel was 101.8 so it was inside the rules and we checked it every time, every race. And it was brought to the racetrack by a little Belgian guy in a little truck with 10 drums. And he made his own way to Monza or Spa or wherever he was going. Nothing to do with me. And he turned up at Monza, as he was meant to do, with his fuel. And we got the fuel and we used it. So we were doing this, and so Ferraris are doing all this publicity about the illegal fuel. And then with a great show, on practice day, they came and took fuel samples from all the cars, you know, Ferraris, McLarens, all the cars, and went off with them. And then the next day, they took fuel samples again, and off they went with them. Didn't say anything. They just took the fuel samples. Didn't tell us any results. By the way, it's quite quick to do. You know, if you have the right laboratory, it takes ten, five minutes to do. And uh, so, as a background to the story, just, because I hope I'm not taking too long with this. No, no, this is it's all great stuff. Um, I never left the racetrack. I always went, stayed with my mechanics until they went home, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, because there were decisions to make. I was there. I didn't work anymore, but I had a wonderful network because I went around and looked at what all the other cars were doing because I could see what had broken in their cars, talk to their mechanics. I was able to go into all their garages, look inside their engines. Oh, I had all this fantastic just, feedback. Just like today. Just, just like, like today. today. Exactly so I, I could go inside the Ferrari garage because I was an ex-mechanic. And I knew exactly what they were all doing, you know, and, and taught their language, if you like. And we were always friendly with the mechanics, Ferrari mechanics. And Nicky, you know, on, the, on a mechanic level, we had a lot of fun with Ferraris. We used to make, make, take the mickey out of them, and, you know, they took the mickey out of ours. And Nicky used to come and visit us and check our cars out and talk to us because his Italian wasn't perfect. His English was very good. Nicky speaks perfect vernacular English. He can, he can do repartee in English. He can't in Italian, but he can in English. And uh, so he used to enjoy, he used to spend a lot of time in our pit, more than he did in Ferraris. He'd have to trot back to Ferraris because practice was starting. Uh, anyway, so I went home with the drivers and got taken out for dinner. You can tell another marvelous story about that. But just got taken out for dinner and everybody was amazed. Here was I at dinner. You know, all the other team managers were coming and saying, oh, what are you doing here, blah, 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 because I'd never been seen you know, at dinner in the restaurant. And we went to this posh restaurant down the road. And then we got back and then the driver said, look, you know, go to bed, get up in the morning, come to work with us. You know? So I said, okay, I'll pretend I'm, you know, 
a posh team manager, you know, a team manager as opposed to a practical one, and I'll go to work with you guys. So at nine o'clock in the morning, we got to the racetrack, and I think the warm-up was at 10, and, and, and Monza has a big fence around it and big gates. You know, it's, it's physically, they're probably all like that now, but in those days they weren't. But Monza was definitely a, a barricade because the Italians are so enthusiastic. They nearly need machine guns to keep them out. And uh, so they had, you know, police on the gate. We got to the place, and inside the gate were Ferrari personnel, and, and, and Piccinini, who was the Ferrari lawyer, was there inside the gate. I thought, what's that all about? So we opened the gates, went inside, the four of us, two drivers, and Teddy and I, and they arrested me in Italian. Nobody would speak English. Piccinini had perfect English, but he wouldn't speak English. Nobody would speak English. They just arrested me, and they had a jail, and they took me and put me in the jail, and nobody would tell me why I was in jail. The other three had to go to work because they had to go you know, and get the cars ready to do the warm-up. So. so whilst I was in jail, um, Teddy was taken up before the stewards of the meeting and said, your cars have been using illegal fuel. Your fuel is 101.8 octane, and the rule is 101, and your practice times don't qualify, so your, all your practice times are void. You'll have to drain your cars, fill your cars up with the fuel that's provided for the circuit by, by Agip, and you race with that fuel, and you'll have to start in the back of the grid. Meanwhile, I'd managed to get a sympathetic Italian journalist to say, What's, why am I in jail? And they said, oh, because they say that you smuggled the fuel into, into Italy. And Ferraris had made this up. It's a brilliant story. So I was in jail for smuggling. And so I had to get somebody to go to the hotel, because the little truck driver didn't like Grand Prix racing, the little Belgian guy that bought the fuel, and had to go to the hotel and find him. And he was there, fortunately. He hadn't gone shopping or sightseeing or anything. And got him back to the racetrack with all the paperwork, which was locked in his truck, and showed them how the fuel had been imported into Italy, paid the duty, blah, blah, blah. So they had to let me out. So I went off to the, to the stewards, obviously, immediately, and said, you know, we've been railroaded. And they said, because uh, I said, why is that? I said, because it says plus or minus 1%, so the 101.8 is legal. And they said, oh, actually, yes, you're right. They knew this all along. They said, oh, oh dear, yes, we've made a mistake. But the stewards of the meeting's decision cannot be changed. still that way. So they had made this decree, and that was it. So we started on the back row of the grid. We got railroaded. Our fuel was perfectly legal. Texaco were going to cause a huge fuss and then decided not to because that would just get more publicity for it and only people who would remember would be Texaco illegal. They wouldn't remember Texaco illegal being exonerated. So the FIA and the Ferrari sent us a, a telex on Monday morning saying, oh, we're terribly sorry, we made a mistake. And that was the end of it. But we got stuffed by the Ferrari very successfully. And Teddy, of course, didn't pick up on the 101.8 thing, which he should have instantly. So we got on the back of the grid, and James was making his way up through the grid and got punted off by um, Welshman um, Price and into the sand barrier and uh, walked home. The crowd spat on him and threw things at him. And then he and I got in the car with his, with his girlfriend and I, and the crowd tried to turn the car over in the, tr in, in, the, in the roads out of the circuit. The crowd got hold of the car and tried to turn it over, but they, they didn't succeed. I just held it at valve bounce, so every time it touched the ground, it shot forward. <laughs> it ran over a few, but not, didn't injure anybody, really. It's, it is just a, it's amazing you know, hearing about the 76 season, because it is, it is just the most incredible season in Yeah, in it was all it's, the way through. Yeah. There wasn't a dull moment. No, no. There was not a dull moment. Every race 
was fraught. Yeah. You know, of course, you had the Nurburgring with it, with the with the yeah. accident with Nicky. Of course, well, I'd, yeah, I'd, we need to. There's got there's so much still to talk, talk about. I'm, yeah. I'm going to come on to Nicky's accident, um, Canadian Grand Prix, and obviously the, the season finale in, in Japan. But I've just got a question here from Nick Mitchell. Um, and it's jumping back to the British Grand Prix here. And he'd like to ask you about the fire extinguisher at the British Grand Prix. Were they really filled with nitrous oxide for Collie? Or is that a rumour Alistair can put to bed? No, we never cheated with, with nitrous oxide. Never. No. That's, that's, right. that's just not true. What we did do, along with I think every other team, we put the fire extinguishers in and then set them off. So that the liquid, the li they, were, they were empty. <laughs> Nobody ever raced, as far as I know, with a full fire extinguisher because it was too heavy. And but, uh, I mean, how much weight are we talking here? It can't be. Oh, five kilos. Um, it's a huge amount of weight. So, really? doof, we just set it off. And, and, and if, if we got caught by the scrutiny and said, this is empty, oh, damn, somebody must have set that off by mistake. Go and get a full one, put it in, and then they turned their backs, poof, <laughs> empty it again. Because it didn't make any mess. It was lovely stuff. They banned it now. It's called BCF, I think. And uh, it was a beautiful... Uh, very good fire extinguisher and put fires out beautifully. But the greenies are banned now. Um, but it made, left no trace. You just had a big cloud of vapour and then nothing. You, know, you couldn't tell it had been set off. Was the entire paddock filled with the sound of... No, no, that was done in private. <laughs> <laughs> so I can tell, tell a very nice story, jumping back a bit, when we first put them in and we were going to use them. You know, we, we were probably not that competitive in those days and we were going to use them. And I had invented an explosive detonator as opposed to a, uh, a spring-loaded thing that I, I made, uh, which was lighter than the original. And uh, Bruce got in the car at Carl Army it was, and they said, okay, now we've got a new thing now, we've got this fire extinguisher. There's a button on the dashboard which you press, and there's one on the roll bar for the marshals to press. And he said, oh, like that, and pressed it. Boof! <laughs> Off it went. Put another one in. <laughs> in those days, we used to run them. But um, I don't think there's ever been an incident where the, where the onboard extinguishers helped in a fire. There's never been, a f uh, never been a crash in Formula One where the onboard extinguisher has ever been deployed and never been any use. Well, on the subject of fires, um, obviously it was the German Grand Prix when Nicky had his terrible accident. Yeah. Um, but he was back for the Italian Grand Prix. I mean, even, I mean, you said that you obviously got on with Nicky so well. That, the, the short period of that, it was just over a month mm. to be back in the car and racing and to fifth at the Italian Grand Prix. That must have been quite something to see. I mean, he was an incredible driver. Oh, yeah, so Nicky was, was a fantastic race driver, still is. <coughs> you know, they, they don't lose it, they just get slower. You know, we all get slower with age. But, you know, Nicky was a very good racing driver because he was a complete, very thinking, you know, hard-working, testing, mulling it over, tactics, politics. And he was into the whole thing, you know, talking to journalists and trying to sway them, you know. He was part of the problem because he was a smart boy and he got in, involved with Ferrari's um, you know, machinations, which were complex they were machiavellian the fries were at it all the time you know they had it you know sitting around but um anyway yeah so uh, the thing about nicky which doesn't get much publicity is for certain the thing that nearly killed him was the fire extinguisher not the fire um his face his face got burnt but the rest of him was fine intact and uh, when he was lifted out of the car by the other drivers he was chatting to them talking quite lucidly about the accident and so on. So they all came back to the pits and said, oh, no problem, Nicky's fine. 
you know, no problem. You know, he's burnt, but he's, he's, he's okay. So our impression was that we just happily raced because Nicky was fine. What happened, as you once again, you watch the video, if you can see it on YouTube, the marshals hit the car with this dry powder extinguishers. And if you've ever been involved with a dry powder extinguisher where somebody's like gone off in a building, it's almost impossible to breathe. It's hideous stuff. Gets in your lungs instantly. <laughs> and that's just a, a mist of it. And Nicky was being hit in the head with this. So he ingested this stuff, which is hideous. You know, it goes like concrete if it gets wet. Now it was inside him, wet, and going like concrete. So this is what nearly killed him. Not the fire, not at all. He had 2% you know, burns or something. His side of his head was burnt, face. But you know, you can, anybody can survive this. It was not the fire that killed, nearly killed him. It was the fire extinguisher powder. And in the Rush film, you see him, the doctor pumping out his lungs. Because what they're doing is they're putting tubes down inside his lung and taking this debris out. An incredibly painful business because he's doing it uh, conscious because they need to guide him with the tube, tell him what it's doing. And they suck all this debris out of him and now he's up and away. So it's a fantastic legend. And it is not a legend, it's true. He did come back. But he came back from being nearly killed by the extinguishers and his face was burned and obviously scarring up. And when he got to Monza, it was still just scarring up. And in the race, you know, rubbing with the helmet on it, bled. and you know, So he was a superhero for sure. It is amazing. I mean, it's, it's as if the 76 season needed more twists and turns. I mean, but an absolutely remarkable comeback. Yeah. Um, jumping around once again, the Canadian Grand Prix after the Italian Grand Prix. Uh, I seem to remember reading a story about uh, you staying in a hotel with James the night before the race. Yeah, this, this is the race that he, this he is did one win. Where, yes, we... we, we James didn't have a manager, you know, he didn't have, these days they've got a mass, two masseurs, a doctor, a manager, a dietitian, you know, I don't know how many people they've got, you know, they must have a busload and come with the driver. Official tweeter, probably. Yeah, yeah, official tweeter, official Facebooker, you know, whatever, the entourage that goes with them. They've got to get something to spend the money on. And uh, we just had the driver, and I was his manager at race tra tracks, unless his brother was around, because Peter was his brother. But, you know, he didn't come. I don't think he was at, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. And we'd been testing the week before, and, uh, and James had a key eye, keen eye for the ladies, and he had a lot of success with women, because uh, he was very direct, very positive about what he was on about, and women respond to that quite well. And, um, and so we were staying in this huge motel down on the freeway, and it was an enormous place, and it had an enormous bar with tiered seating, and it had a live band, and the live band was, was this lead singer was a kind of Stevie Nicks look-alike, little blonde, really tasty, and James pulled her. And uh, so on race evening, I was there, which normally I wouldn't have been, but I left the racetrack with James, because once again, we'd given up. If we hadn't given up, we just thought, you know, to hell with it, you know, we're not going to really work hard at this. Went back to the motel, and James, she would do a set, and then James would take her off to his room, and uh, then she'd do a set, and then he'd take her off to his room, and uh, this was going on all evening, and we were drinking beer, and at midnight, I think it was, I said, well, I've had enough of this, and you should really go to James, bed, James. She said, yeah, 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 she's going to finish in a minute. So I think at one o'clock in the morning, she finished, and they went off to bed, and... Um, when I got up at s early in the morning, probably seven or something, to go to the racetrack you know, for the warm-up and so on, there she was, still in the same clothes, him still in the same clothes, totally dishevelled. Off we went, um, rode in a motorhome, I think, rode in Pete Smith's motorhome, which was good fun, partying in the back of the motorhome, out to the racetrack. And uh, so he'd been up all night, wrecked, drunk, womanising, won the race. 
Yeah, there's not many drivers who who do that. There's not many. He drivers. won the race. No, absolutely amazing. <laughs> so t- we're we're really annoyingly running out of time. I, I knew this would happen, um, but we've got enough time to just cover the season finale and the kind of the, the big finish of the um, of the seventy six title, Japanese Grand Prix. It was the weather was absolutely appalling, yeah. and I think Hunt and Lauda both went to the stewards to ask for the race to be cancelled, didn't they? Yes, the weather was absolutely appalling, and James and and Nicky spent them the day in the tower. They didn't go there, they stayed there. They were living in the tower, if you like. And, uh, and Jerry, who was the other member of the safety committee, mad dog Jerry. And uh, we, um, and Bernie and I, Bernie and I were trying to get the race run. Ferraris were trying to get the race but not run. Surely you were, because at, at this point, Hunt was three points behind Lyon, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, um, had to finish third or better. Yeah, exactly. So, but surely you would have been speaking to James, your driver, to say, stop trying to get the race oh, cancelled. Yes. Sure, There's sure, a sure. title to win. Oh, yeah, of course. But he was but just... But he was just James. I went and said, James, what are you doing? You know, we, we can't win the World Championship unless they run the race. He said, oh, no, he's far too wet, old chap. You know, <laughs> we can't possibly race. Uh-huh. I'm not making this up. It was absolutely adamant that he wasn't going to race. It was far too wet because he and Nicky were on the safety committee and it was too wet. And this went on for hours. I forget, you know, you'd have to look it up. I think it was four o'clock in the afternoon or something. But it got darker and darker and, and it stopped raining a bit. And so the, you know, it wasn't actually pouring down anymore. But it was still, the track was still had lakes on it. And, uh, the, and this is an interesting story that the, the, the crowd, Japanese crowd, were absolutely impassive. 40,000 of them or whatever, 20,000 in the pits. In the pits, just sat there for hours. It didn't make any noise at all. And my mechanics had uh, Acme Thunderer whistles, which they had on strings around their neck, which they used as a horn when they pushed the cars around because they used to run into people's feet and, and damage their ankles. So I said, you boys, you'll stop doing this. You know, this car's dangerous bit of kit. So you had to blow your whistles. So they had these whistles and they all had these whistles and they practiced with these whistles and they played tunes on airplanes and yeah, they had like a whistle band. You know, so the, the whistles, the Acme Thunders were a toy they had. And uh, Lance Gibbs, who was the uh, what called entertainment officer, but he was actually the assistant tire man and sign writer, because we now were getting a bit more professional. We had a few more people, so we had Lance. He was a Kiwi who always wore bare feet, like James, or flip-flops. And uh, we were, the cars were undercover. I was starting mine every half an hour, going whoop, 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 and all the other teams would start theirs up because they didn't know why, but they would. So we had all this engine noise going whoop, 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 which was helping to try and, you know, convince people that the race cars were about to go. And so I said to Lance, Lance, do you think you could get this crowd amused or going in anyway? He said, oh, I'll give it a go. And our pits were more or less in the middle. So he stood on top of an Armco post on the, on the edge of the track, got his Acme Thunder out and went doot, 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 doot. And like magic, 200 or 2,000, I don't know how many Japanese had Acme Thunders or the Japanese version of. And they went, doot, 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 doot. Oh. And now they're all watching him. All 20,000 were like fixed on him. So he went, doot, 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 and did another tune. And they all followed him again. So he had this, this whistle thing going. So I said to him, see if you can teach them to slow clap. And so he did. He, he, he wash. Wash and they intimate, they, Im- they were bored to tears, so they imitate him. And I don't know if you've ever been involved in slow clapping, but as you speed up, it gets faster and faster and faster. When it gets to a certain tempo, people can't follow it anymore, and it goes into a big roar, makes a huge noise, Whoa. like the Icelanders were doing last night in the football. Yeah. 
same Less thing. Less about that, the better. Yeah. Oh, made this whole roar. Oh. So I, he was doing this again and again. So I trotted up to the tower, and Bernie was there trying to get them to run the race. And I turned up, got them there with three old boys, you know, the stewards, you know, who are all Asian, Jap Japanese old boys. I said, listen to that. You've got a riot going on. And he's listening. Oh, I said, look, the crowd's getting really, really upset. You better hold the race. Race. Boom, boom. So Lance Gibbs got the race held because the Japanese organizers were worried about the crowd being excited because Japanese crowds don't get excited. And they were Amazing. making this noise. So they decided to start the race. And James reluctantly came and got in his car and some of them had all decided they would just do one lap and pull in like they did in Spain a few years before. But in fact, the old red mist comes down. Once they, once they are off, they're off, you know, and then you can't stop them. And James, um, you know, finished third, despite his best efforts. Cause this he is did a, try really hard not to, didn't he? He tried really, really hard not to win the race. I have no idea. I never discussed it with him. Sadly, I didn't because I was so irritated with him. I didn't discuss it. I didn't talk to him at all because he was a complete and utter idiot. But in the race, he did not respond to his pit signals at all. Not at all. It was like he was blind. We put stuff on his board to tell him, to tell him what to do. He was in the front. He could see better than anybody else. Now, Mass, for example, who was running third and then second behind him, comfortably, by the way, if you look at the video again, Mass is running comfortably in second place, way quicker than James, because after the first lap, we had a made-up board that said cool tyres. And that they knew what it meant. Well, it meant driving the puddles because the wet tyres were very tall and lots of tread, and on dry tracks, they just get white hot and melt and go away. Uh, but if you've got water, which you can deliberately drive in the state straight, that cools them down. So we gave this to James and and uh, and Jochen, and Jochen instantly responded. He went bush, turned right, bush, 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 bush. You can see it in the video again, driving through the puddles every lap. He comes down the straight to the right of James in the puddles, wang, 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 cooling the tires down. And we were so excited that we showed this to James again. We took away his main pit board. We took away Massa's pit board. So he couldn't be distracted and just put this thing in, said, cool tires. And then we all pointed at it. The whole race team shouted at him and pointed at the sign, and he did not pull over. Andretti, who was running behind them, because remember, he wasn't that quick, and Andretti had this wing car that was really quick. Andretti saw this, and he cooled his tires. He took our instruction, because we labored it so much that Lotus managed to pick up what we were doing, and, and, and Andretti came and cooled his tires and won the race because he had tread left at the end of the race, just like Joachim Mass would have. Sadly, Joachim lost concentration, just flew off the road through being bored, driving behind James with the ball tires. And he still had tread. And James just did not respond to the pit board. So he gave up and just gave him lap times and so on. And then we had a thing at the bottom that said tires, which allowed him to come in any time. In other words, we were ready. But there was no way we could judge when he needed the tires. And there was no way to stop him in the race and win the world championship. The course, he wasn't far enough ahead. It was a huge long pit road in Japan. He lost about 40 seconds or something in a pit stop or more. Because remember, we were taking 10 seconds or 15 seconds to change the wheels because we didn't practice any of that stuff much. And, uh, and we were only allowed five people in the pit road. We only allowed six people in the pit road, one to supervise and five to work on the car. Why on earth they've changed that, the idiots, I have no idea. They still do this in USAC and NASCAR and have fantastic pit stops because only five people are allowed to touch the car. You can actually see what's going on. You can't in Formula One anymore. You just, well, what was that? 
And um, the only, only interest is when it goes wrong. Ha! That's good. Because <laughs> now we can see what's happening. Anyway, so we couldn't stop him at any stage and win the world championship. So we just had to hope that the tyres would last. But they didn't. And on one lap, with about eight laps to go or something, he got two punches. He wore the left front and the left rear down to the air. And he must have been able to see the left front. He would have seen the white band appear because it's made up like a road tire. It's got white bands. And he would have seen those white bands. Did he stop? He drove until it went pop. And then he drove around slowly, losing lots of time, waddled down the pit road. And we had never practiced picking the car up with two flat tires. The flat front, yes, a flat rear, but not two on the same side. So the jacks didn't work. The rear jack picked it up instantly. But that meant the rear jack was behind the car. So that made the front of the car immensely heavy because now the back was in the air and the front was pushed down. So the mechanic on the left front and I had to pick up the left front corner ourselves and put the little handheld jack, because the, the, me the mechanic had to jack it up himself. Because remember, only five people were meant to touch the car. So he put that under. We changed the wheels. It took us 20 seconds or something because of all this scramble. Off he went. We put a new set of wet wets on because they would um, warm up very quickly because he had very little time to go. If we put dries on, he might have taken several laps to get them hot enough to work. But the wets we knew would kind of warm up in the pit road. So off he shot. And fortunately for us, I think he came out eighth. And fortunately for us, other cars ran their tyres through the air. Um, some cars ran out of fuel. Some cars spun. And a marvellous little antidote is the fact that Clay, Ferraris were so stupid that they sacked Clay after Nürburgring. They told him he wasn't going to be used in 77. So Clay was racing, and Clay was an impossible driver to pass, even in good conditions. Everybody came up the back of Clay, and oh, take it easy, because Clay will have you off. And Clay is there, and James comes up to pass him, and you see Clay waving by on the TV. Go by, go by. So James zooms past Regazzoni and uh, gets up to third. And the rest is, you know, history. We won the world championship. Amazing. I'd, I'd, sorry, very quickly. I'd, James didn't realise he'd won, had he? Once did again, he did not look at the pit board. When he came round in P8, it had P8. The next lap was P5. The next lap was P3. And when he crossed the line, it said P1, world champion, on the board. He did not look at the board. The board was absolutely correct. Eight, five, three, one, world champion. And he did not look at the board at all and he came in the pits confused and you know well, he was quite angry as well i think angry yeah. with teddy because he'd been an idiot we'd done everything we could have done absolutely perfectly if i live my life again i could not do it better we did it absolutely perfectly we got the race held we had the best car he was on pole we did everything the idiot just did not look at the board and i and he's gone you know he's gone now so i can't berate him about it but he berates us in, the t in, his, in his book, you know, berate McLaren's what, you know, as we were, how badly we ran Japan. We couldn't have run it better. It was absolutely brilliant. Well, I think to finish on a sort of a, a happy note, because it was ju it's just such a fantastic season. When you, when you look back, when you think back about James, um, and if he sort of pops into your mind, what's, what's your sort of overriding memory of him? What's your favourite memory of him? Oh, his... Uh, his shenanigans with women. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was a very good racing driver, and uh, you know, uh, I don't remember any particularly brilliant, uh, you know, driving manoeuvres or anything. We had a good car, and he was quick, you know. But out of the car, he was a, uh, he was a lot of laughs. And uh, in Canada, anyway, uh, you know, he, he, 
he was a lot of laughs and very successful with women. Yeah. Well, Alistair, thank you so much for coming in today and talking at, at length and so brilliantly about 76. Um, I think I, I should probably offer uh, someone from Ferrari to come in and do a podcast about 76 so that we can get two yeah. sides yeah, of you the get, story. You get, yeah. you get Luca, uh, yeah. not Luca, um, and uh, uh, what's his name? Luca was the next year. Montezello yeah, was it? Was it was Odetto, yeah. yes, Odetto. And the, there is a, a there is a um, documentary made by yeah. uh, the BBC show where I I I I instituted this documentary and I get to say a lot and uh, Odetto gets to say a bit, but I get the last word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. We'll, we'll get Odetto in and then we'll get you back in as well, so you get the last word. Oh, together, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe maybe we should be doing that. Um, I might leave you with the microphones and just and just walk out of the room. <laughs> Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alan, for recording all of this. Um, as as always, so beautifully. Uh, we will see you again next month for another talk show, and uh, we'll give you more news about that very soon. Bye bye for now.